All right. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. You will notice that on the walls we have vacation Bible school posters because we thought what better way to celebrate Father's Day than to have VBS posters for dads, right? Um, no, actually, we are having um, Vacation Bible School. Our, our, our landlord, I guess, uh, St. Timothy's, is going to be having Vacation Bible School this coming week, and so we have their posters up, and you'll see them throughout all of the building, and what's cool is that they've done, I mean, please don't mess this up, but you'll see some of the rooms are, like, super dark because um, they're, I guess, simulating space. It's pretty cool, so you can check those out, but don't mess it up. Um, they work very hard for it. Um, I don't know if there's still space for you to register for, if, you're, if you have kids, for the Vacation Bible School, but I think it's awesome that they're doing this. They took a break during COVID, and I'm glad to see that it's back. Um, like I said, happy Father's Day to all of you, those, especially those of you who are celebrating your first or second Father's Day. And I want you to know that um, it is a worthy calling to be a father. Uh, and regardless of whether or not you have children, it is a worthy calling to be a spiritual parent. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are called to make disciples and have spiritual children. So whether or not you have kids, all of us as followers of Jesus are called to be spiritual parents. And we get our template of fatherhood, of parenthood, from God the Father himself. He's the template for all fathers. So we celebrate ultimately him today. Um, and one of the questions that I want to ask, because uh, those of you especially who are in your first or second year of being a father, Hopefully, you are learning some things about fatherhood, okay? Hopefully, you're learning and growing as a father. And I think one of the things that I have learned, especially in the initial years of being a father, is just how selfish I am and how easy it is to focus on myself. And one of the things about being a father is that it exposes your sinfulness. It exposes how obsessed we can be about ourselves, especially as a dad. And so one of the questions that I want to address today is the broader question, not just for fathers, but what does it mean for a Christian to grow? Okay, what does Christian growth look like? And what's the way you get about it? Because it's a huge emphasis in the Christian faith. And one of my friends was commenting to me how there's really no other community like the church. And that includes for those who are young. Like if you go to a youth group, if you're in high school or you're in junior high and you go to a youth group, you just need to know that when you enter that meeting, the youth staff and the volunteers, they have one focus. They have one primary focus, and that is to help you grow as a Christian. And so there's, there's kind of a unique pressure because there's no other community where the primary purpose is to, make, is to help you grow. And so that, that puts kind of a unique pressure on you when you enter you know, any kind of gathering, and, and, I, and I get it. And I just want you to know it's kind of also interesting to be a pastor because that means there's also a pressure on me to grow. And so I just want to give you like a little glimpse into how I think about things because one of the unique pressures I face is like I'm supposed to read the Bible, right? I have to read the Bible. But I want you to know, and I, and I totally get pastors should read the Bible. That's actually a really important aspect of my job. But I often find that it's really hard for me to read the Bible outside of preparing for sermons. And so I might get up in the morning and I'll be like, you know, I should read the Bible today. I know Micah, my son, is reading the Bible. And I'll be like, man, I should really read the Bible. But then there's also this voice in me that says, no. That just feels like work. 
And then that voice, the other voice, I, I would say the voice of the law is, you picked this profession. You picked, you chose this. And so you should be choosing right now to read the most important book in your life, the very words of God. And then that little voice comes back again. No, I'd rather watch basketball analysis videos in between two ferns. I'd much rather do that. Um, and so you have this kind of competition going on. And so that's where we are now in the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 8 where Paul gives the resolution for this kind of internal battle inside of us that has to do with aspects of our flesh when it interacts with the law, with this moral code. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start from Romans 7 verse 25. And I think I have it on the slide. I'm going to start with Romans 7, verse 25. And I'm just going to read that as a transitional sentence to Romans 8. Romans 7, 25 says this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so this is this transitional sentence. On one hand, it says, thanks be to God for Jesus. But on the second part of the sentence says, you know, there's this law of God with my mind. And when you think law, you can think principle. There's something good. You want to do something good as a follower of Jesus. But then there's this other part of yourself. And the way I described it last week was like, a, like venom, right? It's like this alien parasite or symbiote, I think is the word is, um, that's operating inside of you that has this other kind of cosmic force operating on you to do what's wrong, to do what's evil. And those two forces both reside in you. They're both operating inside of you, and they're kind of waging this internal and hidden war. And that's what I demonstrated by this kind of voice inside of my head. And you may be able to relate to that similar kind of voice. And this has everything to do with this word sanctification. Sanctification, that's just a fancy Christian word for what it means to grow. When we talk about Christian growth, we mean this term, sanctification. And so I wanna, I wanna ask you to think about this question. What's the standard of behavior? Okay, and we all have maybe goals or standards of behavior that we wanna live up to because we wanna grow, right? Like, like I said, one of the things about the Christian life is you wanna grow and become more like Jesus. And so I want you to think about a standard of behavior that you have. It may be a Bible reading goal, for instance. It may be attending church a certain amount of times. It may be helping a commitment to helping the poor. But I want you to think about that standard, and I want you to think about a particular one where you have trouble living up to. Okay, a standard that you've had in the past that you've had trouble living up to. And so this is what I want you to do, and I know this is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable for you to do this. I want you to find someone around you not the person you came with. And I just love for you to discuss that question, okay? I would love you to discuss that question. What's a standard of behavior that you have trouble living up to? Like just in the same way, I have this, I know I have this moral code that I'm supposed to read the Bible, but I have trouble, I struggle with living up to that. Could you take a minute and find someone, not someone you came with, and ask that question? Go. That was one minute. And I, I, just, I just want to observe that I explicitly asked all of us, all of you, to find someone you didn't come with, and some of you didn't move. I just want to observe that. Some of you didn't move. And so I gave you a code, and you failed. Okay? And you failed. And, you know, this, this whole beginning three chapters of Romans is really about that. How everyone, as we have just observed, fails to live up to a moral code. 
That's what Paul's doing in the first three chapters of this book. Nobody lives up to a moral code. And he's talking about two different groups of people. Number one, the Jews, who don't live up to their own moral code that God gave them on tablets. The Ten Commandments, God gave the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, and all the Jews have not lived up to that. And he's very explicit, like he condemns them for not living up to the standard of behavior that they teach other people and other nations to follow. But that's not the end of it. Paul also condemns all Gentiles, that means non-Jews, because, and Greeks, because they don't live up to the standard behavior of their own conscience. They don't live up to their own moral code that they come up with themselves. And so at the end of chapter 3, it says both Jew and Gentile are alike under sin. Everyone, no one is able to live up to the moral code. And then the rest of Romans, starting around chapter 4 or so, it, um, Paul talks about Abraham, this example, this Jewish role model from whom all Jews claim ancestry. They're like, hey, um, Abraham is our forefather. And Paul says something radical. He says, you know what? You can be Jewish, in a sense, right? You can be Jewish because Abraham is not just the father of those who are biologically related. Abraham is the father of everyone who has faith like Abraham. You can be a descendant of Abraham if you have faith like Abraham. And to me, that's like really offensive if you're Jewish or if you're any kind of ethnicity. It's like saying if you're cheap enough and you have filial piety, then you can be Chinese, right? And that's like insulting to Chinese, to Chinese people. But that's what Paul is saying is that there is something that goes deeper than this ethnic ancestry of Abraham that goes deeper into faith that it's possible to have a relationship with Abraham because of faith, that you are related to Abraham because of faith, and that person is Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Jesus Christ connects you to Abraham, and that's this radical idea. And then in chapter 5, that's where Paul begins talking about this idea of how faith justifies us, or chapter 4, faith justifies us, what it means to be justified is not just declared innocent, but that you're declared righteous. It means you're good. You are not just innocent, you're not, you're not just a blank slate, but you are characterized by good works, by being in harmony, in relationship. And so as we get into chapter 6, chapter 6 discusses what it means then to be a slave of Christ and no longer a slave to sin. And the way that we've defined sin is maybe three different ways. One, it is absolutely behavior. It is definitely things that we do against God. But it's not just behavior, it's also the things that happen inside of us. It's also your thoughts and beliefs. That's also sin. And then there's this third idea of sin that Paul talks about in seven, and that's this idea of like this cosmic force operating on us, that whole alien parasite idea. Okay, and chapter seven discusses that. And now as we've come to the end of seven, we're in this internal battle, and now we're into Romans eight. So let me read the first four verses. Let me start with the first four verses. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
And so in this section, Paul is introducing the antidote to this internal war, and it is not to walk by the flesh. It is to walk in the Spirit. Okay, and so we're going to talk about, we're going to spend the next couple weeks talking about what it means to walk in the Spirit. Um, the first thing I want you to notice is j- just to give a little more review of chapter 7 is that the whole purpose of chapter 7 is to show the insufficiency of a moral code, not just the Ten Commandments, but including the Ten Commandments to make people better, okay, to make people better. And the way that I think about this is I think all, there, actually there's a movement within our culture that I think is actually really good that recognizes when you tell people what to do, it doesn't really work. It doesn't have good long-term effects. When you tell people that you should do this, you should do that, you should read the Bible, people end up rebelling against it or falling short of it. And so the way I like to call it, and I I don't know if I used it last week, but I call it the tyranny of the should. The tyranny of the should. Where all this moral code is kind of like over you like a tyrant telling you what to do and you can't live up to it or you use it as a way to feel superior to others. And what you just shared about you know, with your partner, or maybe you didn't, but what, you, what I just asked you to share about is the feeling you get when you f- fall short of that moral code, when you know you're supposed to do something and then you don't do it because the moral code is insufficient to make you a better person. It doesn't work. And so what Paul now is discussing is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, there's no condemnation. And so condemnation is a justice word. It's a word used in the court of law. And so the way to understand what condemnation means is let's take the opposite, okay? Those who are in Christ Jesus are free from condemnation. What I've talked about is you're declared righteous. And so if you are condemned, that means you're accused, you're rightly convicted as a sinner and as a lawbreaker. And every person apart from Jesus is condemned. And I kind of did that just earlier right now, right? And so let me give some examples. I don't know um, that we have a great idea of what it means. I'm I'm not sure I have a great idea of what it means to be condemned in a legal sense, but I do want to share one experience, and I want you to think about some experiences. By the way, I I do want to also recall um, Joanne's testimony from last Sunday about her baptism, and she shared really vulnerably about getting a DUI, right? And when you get a DUI, you you are under condemnation, right? That's a really good example of condemnation. I think that one of the closest I've come um, is... uh, I was sitting in a cafe once because that's where I study. It was over on Branham. And a police officer walked in um, and asked me to go outside. And really, I should have said yes. I should have said, hey, we'll go outside. Um, because right in front of everyone in the cafe, he pre- I said I didn't want to go outside. And I, he proceeded to question me. And he asked me what were my whereabouts over the last hour or so. And it turns out a woman had her car um, broken into. And she um, said there was an Asian guy that was near it. And, uh, and I fit that description. And so I was like, wow, okay. Um, and so I remember um, leaving, and now he was extremely uncomfortable having this conversation with me inside the cafe. And afterwards I was like, okay, I totally get why he wanted to go outside. I should have said yes. Um, but I felt extremely uncomfortable because everyone in the cafe witnessed that conversation. And I felt like this immense sense of shame um, because I'm like, wow, now people are gonna think that you know, this is what I did. But I think also everyone knew it, that I had been in there the whole time. But there's a sense of shame. I mean, that's what condemnation feels like, right? And in this case, I was not, that, that wasn't true of me, but that sense of inadequacy and, and feeling like you are, um, you know, that, this, that you're condemned for something, whether you did it or not, is not a great feeling. It's not a great feeling. 
And in this case, we are rightly condemned apart from Christ because we don't live up to the standard. And so what is it like to then have freedom? What's it like to experience freedom in that? And it's a completely different emotional experience, right? It's a completely different emotional experience. And so as we go through Romans 8, in verse 2 it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And this idea of law is continuing from the end of Romans 7, where it's not just a moral code that he's talking about when he says this law of the spirit of life. He's talking about the principle. There's a principle, a force from the law of the spirit, from the, from the spirit of life that gives freedom. And there's a force from sin and death that doesn't, that gives condemnation. And you have a different principle as a follower of Jesus to experience life through the Spirit. And it's it's a life that is free from condemnation. And then in verse 3 and 4, he explains what that means. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now again, it's saying any moral code does not have the power to change anyone because it's weakened by the flesh. And in verse, uh, the second part of verse three, it says, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And so God has this solution that he provided Jesus who lived a righteous life. This is verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, and so um, as you know, I love metaphor. So I want to give an example of what freedom from this condem- condemnation looks like. This past Thursday, a group of us went country line dancing. And country line dancing is actually pretty simple. You just walk around in a pattern, right? You just walk around in a pattern. And it needs to be in rhythm, right? It's actually pretty important that it's in rhythm. And we'll get to that later regarding me. Um, but it's actually very it's simple. You just keep the pattern. You keep the rhythm. But you'll also know it's very obvious when you don't keep the pattern, right? It's very, very obvious. Um, and so the condemnation is like overt. You just know when someone isn't keeping it. So that you, you always know. Um, and yet what I love, what I appreciate about country land dancing is that at any given time, everyone is condemned. Okay, everyone gets condemned because you always change directions. You change directions like four times. And so I love that um, those who want to hide in the back of the room, right, because there's always the people that they're forced to be there from their, by their friends. And they're in the back, and they're just really happy that no one gets to see them. But when you keep turning and turning, eventually the back of the room becomes the front. And then everyone can see, and they all get condemned. And I just love that. I think that's so amazing. But what I appreciate about this instructor, okay, this country land dance instructor, what he did was, um, in almost every instance, he would move to the front. Okay? He would keep rotating to become the front of the room. And what I appreciate about that is he became the focal point for everyone else. And so he helped everyone else look better. And I know, I know it's weird. Maybe it's, it's totally incomplete metaphor to call my instructor, the, the dance instructor, the Holy Spirit. But what I appreciate about that, he was modeling for us what, it's, what the dance steps look like. And every time he'd just keep moving. He wasn't on the stage. He would just you know, be alongside of us, teaching us how to, modeling for us what the moves look like. And I think that's what it's like to walk in step with the spirit is you have someone who helps you who helps make you look better and you may still be out of rhythm you know you still may not follow the pattern but you have a model for what that looks like nudging and encouraging you along and he was really great at encouraging us 
And so as we go through, I'm going to keep going with this metaphor. You know, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to keep bidding it to death. Um, but that's, that's something about what freedom looks like. And here's the thing. Again, thinking about what Jesus did is that Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Like he's that perfect dance instructor where every move that you're supposed to do, Jesus accomplished it. That's why he can become that model of empowerment on our behalf because he accomplished everything that the moral code requires. You need someone who can actually make those things happen because the law is important. The law is good. Like when you have that pattern, the dance pattern, it's actually really good. It, it's beautiful when people are able to successfully execute it. Okay, and he is that model for us. Romans, Romans 8, 5. I'm gonna read 8. Five through eight. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, in verse 5, it talks about live according to the flesh. And, and what we, re we recognize about the flesh is that it interacts with the law. It's, some, it's this part of our mortal bodies that goes against God. Right? That's kind of our working definition. And then it says, set their minds on things of the flesh. And so there's something about when you're in the flesh that it, uh, it's about your thoughts. Okay, it's about your thoughts. It's not a one-time decision. Now, we think a lot of things in the Christian life, like we, we get people to pray a prayer and they become a Christian and we think that magically, um, and, and you know, there is, there is a supernatural work in that one-time decision to change, but there's an ongoing decision process that happens for everyone, for every person. And that ongoing decision process is what do you do with your thoughts? What do you set your mind on? What is the pattern of your thinking? And what Paul is saying is, those who live according to the flesh have a pattern of thinking, okay? Their thoughts are directed somewhere. And in contrast, those who living, live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. There's a pattern of thinking that goes with those who are walking in the Spirit. And it says in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, I want to pause for a second and recognize it is not always easy to tell if someone is walking in the flesh or someone's walking in the spirit. It's not easy to tell. And the example that I want to give is, I think we want to, I wanted to bookmark earlier, like Jews who teach the law and don't follow it. Because in the beginning of Romans, that's what Paul's talking about. Those who teach the law who don't follow it. And I just want to recognize that there are religious people today, including myself, who teach things to people, who teach the law to people, and then we may not always follow it. Because there are certainly rules within the church that if you follow, um, you can get like Christian promotion, right? You get promoted as a Christian. You get to climb the Christian ladder. Um, and I just want to give an experience of that because what I said earlier is that uh, the Jews could use the law as a way to feel superior to other people. And certainly Christians, Christians today including Christian leaders like myself, have employed those kind of tactics. Like I have a pastor friend who very recently, um, during the cohort we had, um, just mentioned to me, because we had this time of sharing, and he just said whenever there's a time of sharing among a group of Christians, he feels this tremendous pressure to say something insightful. 
Okay, you gotta say something profound, right? And, and I also wanna acknowledge that when we have this open mic sharing, yeah, there is, there is some pressure to say something like profound, right? And so I learned early on in, as part of my Christian life is when I get into those environments, man, just say something deep sounding. You know, say something deep sounding. Say something that sounds deep. And I learned like that's the way to get promoted as a Christian. And then here's the other second thing. You can't just say something profound. You also have to know when to shut up. Okay. It's also important to be concise. Someone's nodding. I love it. You also have to be concise because you don't want them to be that person that goes on and on. And so I realized like the way that you, that we judge people within the church is those that either don't say anything or they just talk and talk. <laughs> right. And the people that get promoted within the church are those who like don't talk too much and they say something profound. Right. Um, and that's kind of the law. That's kind of the law that works. Right. And so that's, that's enabled me now, and I, I am recovering from this, but that's enabled me to be able to judge other people and to feel superior, okay? And that's what Paul is talking about, is don't use the law for that. So you may look spiritual when you do that. You may look spiritual, but that's actually something in the flesh because you're just using it as a way to feel better about yourself. And so what then is the definition of what it means to walk in the Spirit? Well, we looked at Galatians earlier for an example of what the, the deeds of the flesh look like. Let's go back to Galatians and look at what the outcome of the Spirit is. And so we're going to go to Galatians 5, 22. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Wow, he's talking about law here, moral code. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians is a fantastic parallel book with Romans. You can read it alongside it because it has similar themes. But what Paul is saying here is the outcome of walking in the Spirit is these, is these characteristics, love, joy, peace. I won't read the whole thing again. And so just as there is a pattern with sin, and by the way, I talked about repetition, there is a pattern with the fruit of the Spirit, and they have to do with your innermost thoughts, and there's something emotional about them. And then here's the thing, the outcome of this is love. Love is the first one because it's a focus on others. And when we judge people and condemn people, especially the way I described in the church, it does not result in those things. It does not result in love, joy, peace. So that's, how, that's one way you can tell if you're walking in the Spirit, there is an outcome to it. There's something good that comes from it in relationships. That's how you tell you're walking in the Spirit. And so Paul continues in verse, going back to Romans 8, 6 and 7. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And by the way, death, when I talk about that, I mean not just physical death. I mean spiritual death, which is alienation. It's becoming disconnected from God and from others. That's the consequence of setting your mind on the flesh. On the other hand... In the spirit, there is life. There is connection with God. There is connection with others. And what he says at the end in verse 8 is you cannot please God while you're in the flesh. You cannot please God while you're in the flesh. So let me just give one example. Let me give, let me give one, one litmus test you can give to maybe kind of tell if you're walking in the flesh. Your fleshly instincts are often embedded in your first instinct, in the first reaction you have some, to something. Okay? And I'm not saying that first reaction is necessarily bad, but typically, because of the way we've learned how to survive you know, our, with our mortal bodies, that instinct has been corrupted in some way. And so let me give an example. Um, there's a guy named Vince who uh, lives in our parking lot. He lives in a van in our parking lot. And every time I drive in and I'm here throughout the week, 
I'm just, um, I drive in, I'm just bothered. And I'm like, you know what? We need to help Vince because Jesus says, help the poor. That's my first instinct is, is Jesus says, help the poor. I need to go and do that. And it's kind of a moral code, right? And now how do I tell that's fleshly? Now, is that really that fleshly? Well, you know, part of, if I dig deeper into that instinct, a lot of the reason I want to help Vince um, is his van is really messy. And I don't like it that we have kind of this messy van in the middle of our parking lot so that on Sundays, you know, we don't present a great polished image. And I'm like, you know what? He should just, we need to get rid of the mess. And so there's a part of me with that initial instinct. Yes, Jesus helps the poor. But there's a part of me that's like, I just want this mess to go away. I want this mess to disappear. And I don't want to be reminded of what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to have to feel guilty about it. I want it to disappear. Now, and I know not all of you may have that kind of deeper reflection on this, and maybe not all of you would have that kind of instinct, you know, that kind of deeper instinct, but that's actually a real thing for me. That's how I know often it's a fleshly instinct because behind it is, a self, is some kind of selfishness. And that's how I know when I'm operating in the flesh because I just want that feeling of guilt to go away, and I want the mess to go away, right? And so, by the way, I am working with the St. Timothy staff to figure out what is best to help Vince. He does have a caseworker, um, and he's got a number of issues. And I think just my calling right now is just to show hospitality to him. Um, but, I just, but I want you to know there's kind of this insidious thing with the flesh, right? It kind of operates in our first initial instinct. And that's one way you can identify it. Now, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. I'm going to read 9 through 11. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, earlier in the series, I made this contention that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are no longer a sinner, but you are now a saint. And a sinner is characterized by a pattern of sin, whether that's behavior or belief or this cosmic force of evil. And now what I want you to know is that everything that I said about that is still true today. Because a lot of you will come to Romans 6 and read that you are no longer a slave to sin and a slave to righteousness and think to yourself, well, that's partially true because you have to think about Romans 7. You have to consider Romans 7. And in Romans 7, there's this whole struggle. So it actually kind of negates or at least mitigates, minimizes Romans chapter 6. But what Paul is telling us is what you read in Romans 8 is absolutely true. It's everything in Romans 6 is still true absolutely true, that you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ in you, and that is the Spirit of life. Okay, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So you actually are a saint. You may have this internal struggle, and there may be absolutely evidence of sin. Even as you become a Christian, you'll be evidence of sin, but you are still absolutely a saint because the Spirit of God lives in you. And now your, the way that you grow is to live in a pattern of walking in the spirit of trusting the spirit of God to work in you. And that's not about following any kind of moral code or law, though the law is good. It's about being in step with the spirit of God. 
Because what he says is, your mortal body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life. And in verse 11, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Like we celebrated baptism last week. Baptism is that picture of going down into the water and dying and then coming back into new life. So you are a new creation because of what Christ has accomplished for you. You are a new creation. You no longer follow the written code. The written code doesn't make you a better person. You need to become a new person, and that's what Jesus has done on your behalf through his spirit. And so I want to go back to, like I said, this, uh, this dance metaphor. Okay, I'm going to go back to the dance metaphor. And I want you to think about the spirit of God as a dance partner, okay? Because one of the things we did in country land dancing is we did, we did do some partner dancing. And what they asked us, to, asked us to do is if you're the lead, you hold your left hand up, and I think they, you had it as a C, and it's, it's actually like you have to hold it up pretty firmly. It's, you can't be like limp, okay? It's actually important that your hand be, be firm like this. And then you take your right hand and you put it behind your follower, the follower's um, shoulder blade, okay? And there's actually just two things. There's two ways that you nudge because you don't speak when you're dancing. You don't tell the person, well, maybe when you're beginning like me, you say twirl and you twirl, but um, you don't communicate through shouting at the person. It's all nonverbal. And there's two ways that you do it through these, you do it through these contact points. So you're either going to pull with your left hand or you, um, you pull with your, by putting pressure on the shoulder blade. Okay. And so the spirit of God, the way that he leads us is he works through these contact points with us. And those contact points are like prayer, are his word, are God's people, and creation. So God has actually many contact points to be able to communicate his spirit to us. And he nudges us and he invites us into something. And what you're thinking is, well, you know, like what does that look like? Well, the, the beauty of an experienced and skilled dance partner is that you collaborate together to create something beautiful. Because the beauty of a dance partner, of someone who's skilled and experienced, is that they're very responsive to you. Like there's a give and take. And, you, and they create these kind of nudges that allow you to create something different. Now, some of you are, and, and the other thing too is that a, a skilled and experienced dance partner will erase your mistakes. Like what looks like a trip or a stumble or a fall, they can turn into a dip, okay? They can do some really cool things when you're with someone who's skilled and experienced, and that's what the Spirit of God does. Now, I know there have been reports that this past Thursday, I was not able to keep correct rhythm, okay? And there may even be video evidence of that. Posted on the internet, no less. So I just want you to know, I may have fallen short of the law, but I was in step with the Spirit, okay? I was in step with the Spirit. Because there is something, there is something creative that can happen when you are in step with the Spirit. It doesn't have to look like, now, don't, don't take me too seriously on that. Actually, rhythm is very important and vital to dancing. But just recognize there is something else going on when you're in step with the Spirit. There's something creative and collaborative happening that doesn't look like following a moral code. Now, um, some of you are just not going to, relate to a dance metaphor. This is not your primary metaphor. And so let me give you a more basic one, because the metaphor that Paul gives is walking in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And so I want to give you a little bit of historical context, and I don't think it's that hard to imagine. Everything that you did in the ancient Near East was walking. Like if you wanted to live, you had to walk. 
There's no cars. There's no ride sharing. There's no food delivery services. If you wanted to eat, you had to walk. Everywhere you went, you had to walk. And so when it says walk in the spirit, what it means is operate in your daily life in every moment in the spirit. Everything that you do, you operate in the spirit. The word spirit in Greek is pneuma. I think that's how you say it. I actually don't know how to say it. It's like pneuma, right? And pneuma means breath. And so I want to ask you, as you think about the spirit, what it means to walk in the spirit, I want you to consider it as breathing. Like when you take a breath, I want you to consider and be aware of what it means to receive his spirit. That you are breathing him in and that you are receiving forgiveness when you take a breath. That you're receiving his righteousness when you take a breath. That you're receiving this understanding that you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. The sharing prompt today, we haven't done this for a while and I miss it, is to, to share, or I missed the last time, is to share an experience walking in the Spirit. I want you to share an experience where you've walked in the Spirit. And if you want to contrast that with an experience where you've walked in the flesh or been under the law, that's fantastic. That's, that's perfect. That's great. But I just want you, to, I just want to invite you to think about some creative ways or, or ways that you have experienced personally what it means to walk in the Spirit, what it means to dance with the Spirit of God, what it means to breathe Him in. And so I want to invite you in closing. I'm going to pray. And I want you to close your eyes. And I don't know that we always do this, but I want you to um, put out your hands with palms facing upward. Would you do that right now with me? Would you take a deep breath in? And then release. Lord, today, we receive your spirit. We receive your forgiveness. We receive your righteousness. And if you're listening with every sentence, could you just take a breath in? Lord, we receive our sainthood. We receive that we are no longer slaves to sin. We receive that if we're suffocating under law, that you give breath. that you sustain through your son. You give life. You give peace, shalom. You restore harmony in our relationships. And that at any time, we can breathe you in. Lord, so will we operate by breathing you in, will we walk with you? And may we experience the fruit 
of being saints. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.